Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. This week, myself, Ben Wilson, and my fellow co-host, Michael Burke. Hi everyone. We're going to be talking about something that Michael brought up a couple of weeks ago to me as something that would be fascinating for us to talk about. And I couldn't agree more. So take it away, Michael. What, what were you going to be talking about this week? Yeah, sure. So as someone who is more junior in their career, I have struggled with a lack of a long resume, and I've been trying to do things on the side to beef up my potential standing. A lot of it is for fun, a lot of it is for learning purposes, but it also doesn't hurt to have you seem more credible based on those projects. So go to any blog and they're like, oh, these are the 10 data science projects that will get you recognized by this company. And some of them are useful, but I was wondering more specifically about how people like Ben and top talent in the industry view projects like that. So starting off, I saw that it's pretty easy to contribute to all these open source libraries, pandas, numpy, unclear if it'll be approved or used, what the feature that you build, but it's very easy to submit a PR and similar to things like MLflow. So Ben, would you say that if let's say I go out and PR a new comment in MLflow, just like one line, um, would that help my standing in the eyes of a company? It probably wouldn't get merged. Um, <laughs> so even if you file the PR, it it wouldn't, if you claim that on your resume, I guess I should step back. So if I'm interviewing a candidate and they're claiming that like all these projects that they've contributed to, the first thing that I look for is, are they listing their GitHub handle? And are they putting on their resume a direct link to their account profile? If yes, know that I will be searching that when I see that resume. But while I'm getting prepared to talk to that person a couple of hours before I have that face-to-face, I'm gonna look them up. And yeah, part of that is looking at LinkedIn and seeing, oh, who do these people, like who does this person interact with? What are their posts? Do they make comments that are that are constructive and are helpful? Do they seem like a genuinely nice person? Because that's important. But from the GitHub side of things, I'm not looking at just commits or PRs that have been filed. I'm looking at those actual PRs. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. I'll take a random sample. If you look at their account history and you see, okay, they have 437 PRs that they filed in the last year. That's pretty prolific. And if they're all to these open source repositories and they've all been merged, then if they're interviewing for 
a data science position or an ML position, like in the field at Databricks, my first inclination is going to say, why are you not applying to engineering? Because you're doing engineering work, uh, you should probably be looking down that, that, that pathway. But if it's stuff like what you're, you asked, like, is it irrelevant things that are attempting to be merged into an open source repo? I see that as resume driven development and it's just looking for like a false sense of street cred in software development and it's pointless it's pretty apparent when you see commits like that like okay if 20 commits in the last year or 20 20 prs have been filed and they're all doc changes it isn't to say doc changes aren't important they are important but if you're claiming that you're a contributor to a repo and all you've been doing is updating docs or fixing typos yeah don't put that on your resume because somebody's going to look and they're like okay this person's a liar so it, it really depends on what the nature of, of those are. Got it. So it sounds like if you have meaningful PRs and meaningful contributions, include your Git handle on your resume. If you don't, just hide. Is that more or less right? Yeah. If it's something where, and it doesn't just have to be major features that are committed that, that are meaningful. It could be that your account is going on to these open source projects and you're replying to issues that people file. Like, hey, I have this problem. Like, this this doesn't work. And a lot of times, like in, in MLflow, we'll have somebody report an issue, like a, a bug, and it's a user error. Somebody didn't understand how to use an API correctly. And we'll have community members answer that for them. That's incredibly valuable. And that lets you know that, hey, this person is somebody who's trying to help out a random stranger and be a member of this community that's really positive. That's a huge plus for me when I see somebody like that. Even if they're not committing code to it, they're helping the community out. That's great. Would you say this generalizes to people other than you? Or is it just your personal opinion? For how we, like people evaluate resumes and contributions? Yeah, like how you interpret these contributions. Do other people I'd say care? It's pretty, I'd say it's pretty generalized if somebody takes the time to look at somebody's history. And if you're putting it on your resume and you're applying for a technical position, you should be under the assumption that somebody is going to be looking at that. It might be that first round pass of somebody looking is a recruiter. They might not have context to, to know, and they probably don't have context. They'll just see, whoa, this person contributed to 11 different open source repos that seem to be really popular. They're not going to know what those PRs contain unless they come from a technical background, which people like that do exist. But your hiring managers and your your tech screen people, they're definitely looking at that if it's a reputable company who's evaluating a candidate. And if you're applying for a technical position and you're claiming that you have technical acumen to the point where you contributed to these projects, yeah, we're going to be looking at what code you wrote. And if we see like, wow, this person implemented these these 52 features in pandas, that's legit. Like, yeah, this person knows what they're doing. It also go back, personally, I would go back and look at the actual PR and see how they respond to change requests. Are they, do they seem like somebody who's easy to work with? Do they seem like somebody who's humble, who is, if a comment is made that they don't agree with, do they present their their challenge to that statement in a respectful way and one that is inclusive in a in sort of a community environment or are they toxic 
And if even if you have incredibly prolific commitment history to open source projects and you're responding to PR reviews or responding to issues in a super toxic way, I don't I personally don't care how good you are technically if you're a jerk. Like nobody wants to work with somebody like that. So if that's that's how you're going to be in the open source community, good luck finding a company that'll take you on. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And, and on my end, I tend to be performing interviews later in the funnel and often working with soft skills and product analytics mindsets. So I usually don't need to look at Git repos. We have other other people further upstream that do that. But yeah, Ben, you make a good point that it'd be... It'd, if you're applying for a technical role, there's probably at least someone somewhere that's going to be looking at your Git repo if you link it. Even if I'm doing a soft skills interview, which I do do those for Databricks, I still take some time to really research that person just out of courtesy to them. Because uh, it's a big, it's like a big thing. When you're applying for a, a job that you really want at a company, you're emotionally invested in that. And if you're already working at that company and you're like, all right, this is my my 17th interview this month and oh, I've got all this other stuff I have to do. It may seem like it makes sense to not prioritize interviewing for technical positions, but I always try to put that first and foremost because there's no more important activity you can do as a technical person at a company than ensure that you're bringing on the right people to the team. It is the most important activity that you can do as either a software engineer, as a data scientist, an ML engineer, doesn't matter what you're doing in tech. If you can't make sure that this person's going to be somebody who is going to be challenging you and making you grow, and also somebody who's going to grow into the role that you're hiring them for. Yeah, if you're not taking time to do that, you could be setting up your team for failure, basically. Yeah, it just takes I, that one bad apple to ruin everything. Yeah, I was about to say that. It just takes one person, that's, and that's all it needs. Yep. Cool. So that's regarding public repos. Let's move on to some other potential ways of building street cred, in quotes. So one way is having papers, whether they're peer-reviewed or not peer-reviewed. What are your thoughts on that? It depends on what it is. So a lot of papers get published, like a lot. <laughs> and... Some of them are, are sort of powerful but silent, which means they don't get much recognition when they're first written because maybe they're so far ahead of where the actual utilization of that could be that it won't be seen as, as important until maybe 10 years, 20 years in the future. It's really hard to determine the value of a paper just looking at number of citations. So I tend not to look at stuff like that if I'm evaluating somebody's body of work. Uh, but what I do look at is reading through the, the abstract really quick and saying, is this something that's relevant to the position and the field of study that they're going to be working in? If it is, great. Does it seem like it's, it's legitimate? And then I'll scroll through the paper and I'll, I'll start. I always do a scan of white papers by looking at the images first. I don't know how many people do that, but I do it just so that I can get this mental map of what the topic is and be able to, to see like, hey, are they, are they presenting this information in a way that can be validated? And does it seem like it can be re reproducible? Can I see the x-axis and y-axis on their charts? Do their diagrams actually seem like they're, they're actually generated and not edited? And then I'll go back up and I'll read through the paper and 
if it's something that I'm familiar with, an area of study, then I'll read it and attempt to fully understand it. Maybe I'll read it two or three times. If it's something that's completely outside my wheelhouse that I have no experience on, I'll read it and hopefully learn a couple of things. But I don't pretend to be able to judge the merit of that academically. You know, a lot of I've looked at a lot of data science people coming into the profession and they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Somebody writing about a new method of something with nuclear medicine. I have no idea what that's about. Like I did not study that. So I can read it and appreciate it for what it is, but I can't tell if it's garbage or not. But if it's in the field of data science or machine learning or AI or something, and it seems like it's just a very slight variation on prior art and there's no real nothing of substance that was presented in that. I kind of file that away and say, okay, this was for their thesis so they could get their PhD. I get it. It's just how the system works. You have to produce some sort of original original research. And you can kind of tell, is this something that is actually useful or is it just somebody doing what they have to do to get this this academic honor? And every so often you come across something where it's so there's so much original research that was done into it and it's done in such a way that you could actually reproduce it. Like they're including source code with, with the paper and like, Hey, here's the exact environment you would need in order to reproduce this. And you can actually take the code or there's, there's a link to a repository where you can actually, you know, fork the repo and run it. Then it's, it's more of a, why aren't you working in engineering? (laughs) You know, like, why do you want to do data science? But for Data science applications, yeah, it, it could be a, a novel approach to to utilizing tooling or some new architecture or structure with a, an AI algorithm. Yeah, that's it's massive street cred if you're publishing stuff like that. But I don't only look at that. It's not like oh, you have to be published in order to be, you know, considered for a position. I think that's ridiculous. There are people writing, you know, blogs out there that are written in either an academic or a teaching manner where you read through it and it's like, all right, this person's distilling this really complex topic that's highly esoteric in a way that people that are familiar with this field can instantly understand. And they're walking through it step by step and giving analogies. Then I know that this person's a natural born teacher and they're going to work great on the team. Natural born teachers also are natural born learners. So that's a huge po- like bonus for me. I can look at somebody's body of work and say, wow, they took the time to do this. It's really well done. It's just a huge plus for me to see that. Yeah, I could not agree more. And you, you hit a bunch of really important topics. One of them regarding the images is communication skills. So if your graphs have legible X and Y axes, if they are properly documented, if you can just glance at it and say, oh, I sort of understand what's going on. Likewise, in the abstract, you should be able to at least determine what the direction of the conclusion was and what the direction of the contribution was. You might not know anything about the subject matter, but you should be able to sort of understand the general process and what they're doing in a few sentences or a few sentences. And communication, I think, is incredibly important on the job, as you said, Ben. And then also, yeah, if you are working to communicate and distill complex topics through a blog, um, it's a really good practice to to help you understand a the method and then also how to communicate it to non-technical or at least less technical people or even people on your team that are more tech. If you can 
distill a complex topic that someone doesn't understand into something in a couple sentences. Uh, that's incredibly, incredibly valuable. Something that I definitely work on a lot and I'm no pro, but I'm, I'm getting better and I'm really seeing the results. So if you can just enter a meeting and say X, Y, Z, and people are like, oh, cool. And then they can move on to the next topic. It's incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then final point that I think really resonated was people tend to get overwhelmed with the amount of opportunity in terms of providing street cred as we're talking about. So go get a patent, go write a paper, go write a blog, go do a podcast. Podcast is the best, by the way. What really matters is that you align with your personality and what you enjoy doing and actually make that thing good. So a bunch of buddies who are in college, they say, oh, how do I get recognized if I don't have a ton of work experience? How do I become credible? And the answer is don't do a lot of small things. Pick something that you actually care about, something that you can actually make an impact in, something that you actually have subject matter knowledge in. And try to go kind of deep and try to actually help someone and help the industry or help the field. Um, That is way better than having a bunch of B to C to D work that's very diverse. Um, At least that's my opinion. Um, What are are your thoughts on that, Ben? I would not even be able to agree more than what you just said. (laughs) This field, whether we're talking about any of the the acronyms that seem to be all somewhat synonymous of data science and ML engineering and this entire field that this podcast is about. It's a field of specialization that it's it's slightly misleading when we apply the blanket term of data science to it. You, know, you ask somebody what, what they do, oh, I'm a data scientist. And then somebody who's been working as a data scientist for a while would be like, oh, what do you specialize in? It's usually the, the next thing that that somebody's going to ask like oh do you do nlp do you do computer vision do you do for you know time series forecasting do you do like more generalized you know traditional machine learning like what is it that you do and if the response to that is oh well i do all of that which i've heard people say and i kind of look at them for a moment try to gauge how many years they've been on the planet say like yeah you're definitely younger than me but you claim to have done all of these things so you probably have done demos of most of those but what i really want to know is what's the production stuff like what's that that journey of pain discovery that you've had to go down in order to solve real problems what what tools did you use what techniques what what aspect of this field did you go down and that specialization as you exactly as you said going deep into something that's the only way to really learn how all of the nuance of these subclasses of ML work uh, actually function. So anybody can run a demo. Anybody can can build a proof of concept that uses the API defaults for this you know this package and and follow along with the super clean data sets that can produce a result. But when you take real world data and all of the flaws that that might contain and you have to solve a real problem using these real tools in the process of making something successful that's providing value, you're going to learn a lot about that. You're going to become that deep expert after you do that maybe 15, 20 times. And that you're going to become a recognized expert after you do that 100 times of going through that process of building projects that utilize that tech. So it's when people are like, well, how do I build street cred? You just do it a lot. 
until it becomes sort of boring because you know it so well and you stop focusing on the tech and you know the techniques that you have to do once that becomes second nature and you can write about it in as just as you said you can write about it in three sentences to explain it to pretty much anybody you can do that explain it like i'm five pitch about it, anything that you're touching that requires such a deep knowledge of that topic that you can only gain that through extensive experience that yeah, might have been you- an ageist response but uh <laughs> it's not so much how old you are it's just how many times you've done it you could do 50 projects before the age of 30 if you're just really prolific and you're working for a company that has a lot of stuff to do or you've worked for a number of different companies that specialize in that you could uh, get that sort of experience in that amount of time yeah you, you bring up a very valid point that younger people who don't have let's say 15 years in industry just don't have the volume of time to build out tons and tons of knowledge in tons of tons of areas. Um, so from your perspective, what is the highest ROI project that you could do in, let's say, three months? Oof. And obviously, it differs greatly between role and your specific industry and things like that. But let's say you're coming out of undergrad or master's in some technical field, comp side, data science, ML. I don't even know if they have ML undergrads. But you're coming out of sort of a generalized degree, and maybe you have one or two years in an in industry, you could spend three months doing one thing. What would the, be the general guidelines for that? Ooh, I would advise my younger self and other people that I talk to who ask similar questions like this, like, how do I get really good at this one thing? And people usually follow that up with, well, should I really learn how to do these advanced manipulations in pandas? Or should I get really good at Python development? Or what should I study? And I always sort of answer the same thing. It's like, it doesn't matter. What you should do is get a project into production. doesn't matter what it is. You're going to learn so much so fast by feeling the pain, the pressure of trying to figure out how to fix what you broke in the path of getting something to production and then making sure that you're answering the questions that the business is going to have because that lets you know what is important and what isn't important. It lets you know what does what does a company actually care about for utilizing machine learning or data science techniques. That's more valuable than learning any tech skill. But you're going to learn those tech skills in the process of pushing something to production. You have to learn it because if you don't learn it, it's not going to be in production for very long. It's either going to be thrown exceptions, you know, all the time, or it's going to be producing such garbage that somebody in management is going to say, hey, why are we doing this? This sucks. Like, it's not providing any value. In fact, it's causing us to lose money. Let's turn that off. But spending those months, and it could be years, working towards getting something that is providing business value is making the company money. That's how you build street cred. And when you go for that interview, even if you don't have any public contributions and you don't have any any papers that have been written, explaining that process and what you've gained during that time is more valuable than any other experience because you've learned how to code. You've learned how to do CICD. You've learned how to you know do all of your, your testing. You've had to because if you don't, if you didn't build all that stuff and didn't learn how to do that, your project's not running successfully in production. Can guarantee from personal experience. Yeah, I, I can also guarantee from personal experience <laughs> but yeah i earlier you you hinted at a point which i think makes it's sort of counterintuitive but it's arguably the most important thing that i've 
learned slash I'm still trying to teach myself, which is if you're looking to be credible, you have to stop trying to be credible. Yes. Um, if if you want to be really good at pandas or really good at NumPy, you shouldn't go like learn about pandas and NumPy. You should use it. And along the way, you will learn the necessary things and struggle and grow. And because there's so much backend for, for example, I use pandas daily and SQL daily, and I've gotten a lot better at it. And there are so many things about both that I have no idea how they work. But you really don't necessarily need to know them in production and in, in company environments. So simulating work that is essentially the end goal is to provide value. If you can provide value with those tools, you learn those tools and you will be good enough at those tools. So it's, it's really counterintuitive, but it's important to think about how you're going to provide value instead of how you're going to look like you can provide value. Because if you just provide value, you usually are pretty good. Or you've demonstrated that you can you can learn the things you need to True. learn to get a project into production. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I've never, with the exception of one technology, and that would be Apache Spark. And that's because of the job that, at Databricks that, that I've been doing in the field. We had to learn a tech stack. We had to learn Apache Spark. And the reason we had to know as much about that framework as possible is because we're interacting with customers who have so many diverse use cases that you're not going to know it all when you start. You're not going to know it all even after doing it for you know, five or six years, simply because it's mutable. It's always changing. There's new features coming out. But aside from that, for project work as a data scientist, I've never found the value of being like, I'm going to read through the pandas docs and I'm going to learn how to do everything in pandas. Not only does it seem boring to me to do that, but it just seems like such a waste of my time. And that's something that you learn after doing so many projects with so many different libraries and potentially so many different languages. I found that when I when I had to learn my third programming language, I stopped focusing on, well, I need to know how to do all these things because all I have to do is look it up in the docs. And that doesn't mean I'm going to read the docs.org and looking through the high-level API docs. That means I, I need to go through the actual API docs and see where are these methods? What are their signatures? How do I actually do this operation by looking at source code? And that works for open source packages. For proprietary code, yeah, you're looking at docs, docs. But regardless of what you're using, what language, what platform, what tools within that, the most important tech thing to learn is how to effectively and efficiently grok docs so that you can write prototype code really quickly and see 
and test to be able to rapidly break what you're, I mean, fix what you're going to break. Because we all do it. The most senior people out there who seem like savants behind a keyboard, if you've ever pair programmed with them, you'll see, yeah, they're breaking stuff all the time. Exceptions are thrown. That's why exceptions are thrown is to give you information about why you broke, like why it broke. But over time, you start getting faster and faster and that more efficient. You understand, okay, this data structure cannot be converted into this data structure. If I do this operation, like, hey, I need to transpose this first and then multiply. You know, you, you get a feel for how to do that, what needs to be done that can translate to different libraries and different languages. Then why do interviews often assume that you can't use Google during the interview process? Uh, I don't know. A lot of companies are really bad at interviews, I think. And a lot of people are really lazy with interviews. If you're asking questions on an interview that requires rote memorization of things that are not foundational for your job, then you're just being lazy. It's the easy way out. Like, oh, I'm just going to go through this list of questions. Hey, you know, implement bubble sort for me. It's like, okay, here's the algorithm for that that I memorized six months ago in preparation for interviewing for you. It doesn't test anything but your memory. But if you give a novel problem and you give a development environment and say, hey, you can access Stack Overflow. You can access the API docs. I just want to see you with a command prompt and I want to watch you solve this problem with me in front of me. You're going to learn so much more about how they work, what their design patterns are. Do they understand the nature of this language to a, that they claim to, to know? And then for, for other sorts of interviews that are technical in data science world, I don't ask people about algorithms on those. I don't care. Like If you want to be able to recite the the way that random forest does what random forest does and how you know differential entropy is calculated and where a split condition is determined it doesn't matter you're never going to build a random forest algorithm from scratch it's good to understand it but you can look it up like people have written books on this topic and blogs on this topic just go read the blog if you need to understand why your model sucks but in an interview i'm asking a use case scenario I want to see how somebody thinks. And then I want to see them tell me the magic words, the three magic words on any interview, which is, I don't know. If, if I don't hear that from somebody, it's an instant fail on an interview. Because anybody who cannot admit that is not somebody that I want to work with. Because I admit that almost every day. <laughs> like, I don't know this thing. I'm going to go look it up, though. Yeah, so you place a lot more emphasis on humility and the ability to learn over having a Rolodex in your head. Oh, of course. I mean, there, there's certain core foundational things that you need to know about the basics of this profession. You have to know, I would expect people to be able to issue a very simple query against the data, against the database and be able to join three tables. Shouldn't have to Google that. That would be disappointing to see somebody be like, I don't know how to write ANSI SQL. Other stuff like, hey, how to construct a pipeline uh, for a, a simple ML use case. Like, how do you index categorical data in the language of your choice? How do you normalize continuous data? Why would you do that? And But I'm not asking for, hey, let's talk through the theory of ALS. And I, I want to know how matrix factorization works. Show me how a transpose works and, and why mathematically that, that functions the way that it does. It's, it's irrelevant for an end use case position. Now, I would ask stuff like that if, if the company I was working at was in the business of developing novel algorithms and, you know, we 
we needed to make sure that this person really understood that math from memory and be able to walk through a a solution for it. Yeah, but if you're working as a data scientist, you really shouldn't be doing that anyway. That's that's like a software engineer will do that at some sort of company that offers software that does that calculation. Yeah, agreed. I want, the day that I can completely control the interview process on my team slash company, oh, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, another question related to that, which is pre-interview, you got, let's say you're the talent screener and you get a resume and a very friendly, polite cover letter that explains why this person wants to work at this company. What is the most overhyped predictor and what is the most underhyped predictor? Of job success. Ooh, I don't get too many cover letters and submissions. Maybe that's that's an industry specific thing. I do get them sometimes, but things that I see on a resume that send warning flags would be references to irrelevant technology. If I see a data scientist and they're they're writing down basically their hot start bar on their on a PC of like proficient in Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel. It's like, really? You, you straight up do not have to put that down. You could just say, hey, Python and ML libraries. Like, hey, I built stuff with sklearn or I built stuff with PySpark. Cool. So you should be, I should be able to ask you questions about those, like the differences between those and how, how would an algorithm fit in a distributed system versus in a non-distributed system. But some other flags are somebody who doesn't have enough years of experience listing down listing down accomplishments of projects that they've done that there's no conceivable way that they did all of those things that just opens up pandora's box for me during the interview if you phrase it on your resume as though you're the person who did this soup to nuts by yourself and you're 22 years old and you said that you deployed an entire recommendation engine from ETL all the way to REST API serving at a 15 millisecond latency response, then I've got questions for you. And I will dig deep into all of the architecture of that. Because either you're a savant who has been doing this since you were eight years old and spend all your free time in front of a computer learning all this stuff, or you're a liar. And I need to determine the difference there. I mean, that, that's a big, big red flag for me is, is claiming credit for a team's work. It just opens me up for a lot of questions for that person. And then vague stuff, like really vaguely stating things that they had done that don't go into enough technical information of just saying, hey, I worked on Project X. Like, hey, I, I built the credit card fraud detection system at my company. It's like, well, what part of that did you do? Did you develop the algorithm? solution that provides a prediction for this or did you build the entire framework of human in the loop design for labeling and identifying and then corrective action and did you build the actual hook that's going to go out and lock somebody's credit card when a high probability of fraud detection is, is detected did you did you build that entire system regardless of how old you are and how many years of experience that's a lot of things to be familiar with in one human being. And if you, if I start seeing projects like that and like, hey, I, I worked for this company for the last four years and here's the nine projects I worked on and it reads like 
those were all projects that were done by this person from start to finish. I just do a very simple Fermi estimation in my head of like, how long would it take a normal human being to build this project to production? Is there enough time to do all nine of these in four years? Usually when I see that amount of work in a short period of time, the answer is no. Once you dig into it in an interview, you're like, okay, you're trying to brag here, which means you're you're trying to, you're hoping to squeak by without actually talking to somebody who's aware of how all this stuff works, which means that's how, that's going to carry on to how that person's going to be at work too. So, Yeah, I, I completely agree. The, the main flag for me, as you said, is just having a really undetailed resume and like using buzzwords instead of actual useful words. So built an ML algorithm to predict fraud. Like, I mean, cool, but <laughs> it doesn't, as someone who would be potentially working with you, it doesn't give me any read on what your skill set is, what you like doing, what you don't like doing, where you like, what angles you try to take in projects. Some people just headphones on and code and build the algorithm. Some people like interacting with stakeholders and presenting. So it really is not helpful. And the actual worst thing that I've seen is when you just list your job and you don't actually have any description of what you do at that job that it's like it's definitely a bit of a pet peeve for me because i i like having clean efficient communication but at the same time i think as a general lesson it's really important that your resume actually has content and i totally get the 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 argument of hey i don't have a ton of experience i still need to stand out to these people so i'm gonna just use buzzwords I like I understand that and it's it's a tough it's a tough place to be but do a project or something. Yeah, and the, there's no better way of demonstrating even if you don't have a lot of real-world work experience having a couple of projects under your belt that you actually did build from start to finish it could be something completely irrelevant to anything a company would care about but it's like hey I connected to the, the live Wikipedia Kafka stream that they offer that you can connect to and, and read from those topics. And I, I, I tried to detect if there's some correlation between country of edit origin and like tonal content of how edits are being made within a particular language. Is that revolutionary ML work? No, like it's fascinating. You could write a a blog about it and be like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's some fun thing that I that I learned and I built. But it's that process of discovery that you go through of like, well, okay, I'm dealing with NLP. I gotta go like research how how people do this and read it, read a couple books on how to do this the right way. And then I'm gonna write a bunch of code and I'm gonna figure this out. And then if you're gonna work on a project like that as a data scientist or particularly as an ML engineer and you're you're doing it for the reason of learning, growing, and as effectively resume candy, please put your code in GitHub. Show it to people so that, I mean, it's free. It's, there's zero cost for it. Microsoft and GitHub graciously give that to the world to say, we will host your open source code for free. But while you're doing that, have that, that test code, have unit test coverage. Use that as a way of showing like, hey, I understand how to architect code for it to be testable. Because in production, in a company, that's expected. And then, hey, you want to show a really quick and dirty CI? Set up GitHub Actions. It, it's free. There's a free tier. As long as you're not pushing you know, more than 500 megabytes of data to those VMs, 
you're in the clear. You want to show how to how to generate test data, write a, te- a data generator that takes in a config and either deterministically or non-deterministically generates data for synthetic data. You don't want to you don't want to license non-open source data as part of your repo, by the way. But uh, you know, show off the skills that you learned in doing that project so that it's a talking point with an interviewer. And I, companies look at stuff like that. If I see somebody say at the bottom of the resume, here's some projects that I worked on. And I, I've I've hired people that have stuff like that on their resume. Like, hey, here's here's four repos that I've built over the last five years that like here's one on data science visualization. It's a JavaScript library. And here's some demo of it. You actually go to a website that runs off of this and you're like, okay, this person learned a lot. It's not, it might not be perfect. It might not be as good as what a front-end developer is doing at my current company, but that's a lot of stuff they had to learn. And that tells me more about who they are and who they're going to be as an employee than anything that they've memorized. Because that's what the job is. That's what we do as data scientists is it's a constant and never-ending journey into the unknown. It's how do you know how to navigate that efficiently, but also how are you conducting yourself on that journey so that you're not leaving your team and the rest of your company in the dust? How do you bring everybody else with you on that journey so that you have that support, that people believe in the project and they're emotionally invested in making sure that this is going to work for everybody? That's the key to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Basically, you want to get a taste of how they would work in real life. What better way than to look at people's work? So that, that makes a lot of sense. On my end, in terms of underhyped things, I think that, as Ben said, most companies interview terribly as someone who's been to a couple interviews. The things that I really value that I think are not valued as much are side projects, as Ben said, self-starter initiatives, self the ability to essentially work autonomous, autonomously and learn autonomously. So anything that demonstrates that, side projects, blogs, whatever, anything that shows that I think is really, really valuable. And most recruiters don't care. I know a lot of recruiters just look at the prior company name, if they recognize a company name, pass, else not pass. And I think that's just a, a fundamentally atrocious way to, to interview and to at least scan resumes. So anything that shows that you have the ability to work autonomously, you're driven, you are have some level of intelligence that I really, really value, and that can come in very, or very that can come in many different forms. Yeah, and this wraps back up to our initial thing that we were talking about, which is open source contributions. If you yeah. want to get notoriety, and if you want to bypass that entire sort of broken chain of tech recruiting. And it's no fault on the recruiters because they're sifting through hundreds of thousands of resumes. A lot of it's automated and it is just keyword extraction. So it's a problem of data volume in a lot of those scenarios. But if you want to skip beyond all of that stuff, get to know people that are at that company that you want to work at. You want to get them contacting you and asking you if you want to work for them and saying like, hey, do you want me to sponsor you and send me your resume? I'll, I'll put it in the system. You just bypassed all the recruiting because that's a direct employee referral. You want to be able to get to that point, impress people, be somebody who's working on open source packages and people start looking at that. They're like, hey, who is this person that 
just submitted this PR. Like, where do they work? People are going to be looking you up. You know, you submit a significant PR to open source. Go check your LinkedIn. If you have it linked to your GitHub handle, go check that out. See how many people have viewed your profile over the next, like the following two weeks. See what companies they're from. You know, if you're trying to land a job at, at one of these big tech companies as a data scientist or an ML engineer, no better way for people to notice you than start making selfless contributions to, so that the rest of the community can benefit from it. You'd be surprised how many people start reaching out and saying, hey, what are you doing? You want to have, you know, have a little bit of a chat with us? And that's how a lot of people get hired into very senior positions as well in tech. Is- yeah. To, to not use the term networking, networking is helpful, but networking in the sense that you're actually providing value. Like people want to know you, people want to talk to you, people want to chat. It's not about going to a conference and talking to a hundred people. It's about going to a conference and talking to one person and having them like you and like what you do. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yes, it's it's about substance over quantity and just randomly reaching out to people at tech companies on LinkedIn or on Twitter can confirm that does not work. Please stop doing it. Uh, (laughs) You know, if you reach out and just say something to somebody, it it doesn't tell them anything about what you know how to do. It's just somebody reaching out and saying, hey, what's up? It's like, okay, hi, nice to meet you. Same thing at a conference. If you corner somebody on the floor of a conference showroom because you've heard about them or you're really interested in working at their company, don't do hero worship fawning over them. Like engage in an, an intelligent conversation with them if if it works out and you know you, you make an inroad there that substance or that substantive conversation is going to do do good things for you but just a a general bs session with somebody they're not going to even remember you cuz they've had 200 of those that day and they're not remembering any of them cuz they're all just slight variations of the same copy but when you when you commit code it's really hard to argue with that and people look at how you respond to criticism on those those PRs. And if you seem like somebody who's just dedicated and wants to help out and is is just genuinely pleasant to work with and knows what they're doing, yeah, people are going to be knocking on your door. You don't even have to network. The network is going to come to you, but you have to put in the effort. Yeah, I completely agree. And one one final point on my end is cold emails, cold calling doesn't really work. And it's really not worth the ROI on your time. Like, feel free to do it. But what I have found is the most effective way to connect with people where you really can't provide value is ask for advice. People actually enjoy giving advice. People actually enjoy mentoring like half the time. <laughs> Other half the time they'd say get lost, but that's where you were at the beginning. Like By not asking, your answer is no. So you have literally nothing to lose by asking. And asking good questions like, Hey, how did you get here? And like bringing their experience into your life um, and into your situation. Uh, so that I, f- I found that to be f- somewhat effective, at least more effective than pitching yourself or things like that. Because people, as Ben said, people get a pitch a day minimum. So actually asking for them to help you is sort of a weird change of, of roles. And if they're good questions, people actually 
sometimes engage. Yep. Could not agree more. All right. This is a really fun conversation. <laughs> um, very, very different than what we normally talk about, but I think it might be even more relevant to a lot of listeners out there than some of the tech stuff, because I get these sorts of questions quite frequently, even internally at Databricks in the field. People ask me stuff like this. Like, well, how did you do what you did? Like, it's I couldn't begin to tell you how I did it. I'm just always looking to learn new things. So here's the things that I did that seemed to work out, but I wasn't trying to make them work out in that way. I I have this motivation to, I always want to try to feel like the dumbest person in the room. And the way that you feel like that is surround yourself by people that know more about a topic that you don't know about, and then listen when they talk and ask them questions. Sometimes it's a reciprocal thing. You know more about this other thing than that person. Then it's a sort of mutual learning process. And if you can find an environment where that's fostered and nurtured, that's pure gold uh, career-wise. And you learn so much and you become a part of a community. You don't have to work at the same company for that. You can do that around an open source community. And there's a lot of great ones out there. Yeah. Before you know it, if you, if you, consistently continue to do that and have that mentality good things will happen to your career that's all i can yeah, say about that i literally could not agree more i love being the dumbest person in the room and as soon as i'm like nearing the median level i know i need to get the hell out so <laughs> yep definitely all right so i think that wraps it up for this uh this week's episode we're nearing uh f- 55 minutes but uh this is great uh, great conversation uh I think we're going to tackle that third item on our next panelist discussion, which will probably be in a couple of weeks because we have some guests coming up. But uh, yeah, as always, it was fun. And please be sure to stay tuned next time. So on behalf of uh, our co-host, myself, Ben Wilson, and Michael Burke, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.